Hello, it's Chuck from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. Before I begin, I am proud to announce that Above the Basement has been nominated for two 2020 Boston Music Awards, Music Podcast of the Year and Live Music Stream of the Year. We would, of course, love your vote. The nominees this year are crazy good, and we are excited but not surprised that so many former and future guests are also nominated. So just like in the upcoming election, your vote matters. Support us and Boston Music by voting at bostonmusicawards.com forward slash vote. Thank you for your support. Every once in a while, we get to chat with a Boston legend. Chris Smither is one of the most distinguished and authentic singer-songwriter bluesmen we have seen over the past 50-plus years. His soulful voice and excellent fingerstyle playing is set to a heartbeat kept in time by his signature tapping feet. Chris moved to Boston from New Orleans back in the mid-1960s, and within hours of arriving, he was on stage with Eric Von Schmidt in Harvard Square at Club 47, now Club Pessim. Hanging out with blues musicians Dick Waterman, Sunhouse, and Fred McDowell, he began to hone his songwriting chops. Also in that group of bluesmen was the incomparable Bonnie Raitt, who fell in love with his song, Love You Like a Man, and made it her own. His songs have since been recorded by Emmy Lou Harris, Diana Krall, Josh Ritter, Loudon Wainwright III, Dave Alvin, Patty Larkin, Peter Case, and Tim O'Brien. He continued to write, perform, and also overcome his personal struggles to be a musical road warrior. He's put out 18-plus albums, his most recent, a compilation of songs that didn't make it onto his retrospective album, Still on the Levy, that was so good that they had to be released as well. Chris is still on the road and has proven to be one of the greatest American folk blues artists to grace the stage. Jonathan Beakley joins me as co-host this time around. So here is our conversation with Chris Smither, recorded at Woods Hill Table in Concord, Massachusetts. So where are you coming from? Amherst. Amherst. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, you were just out in Belchertown. I was just out in Belchertown. I just checked you. That's right. Checking <laughs> your website. Well, I talked to, to uh, Lisa uh, Bastoni. Which is well, I was just in Belchertown to pick up oh. t-shirts and hats. Oh, but anyways. So you live in Amherst? Yeah. How long have you been there? Uh, I think it's about 12 years now. Oh, okay. Yeah. We, no, well, let's see. Can't be quite that long. Because we moved out there. We adopted a girl from China. Oh, wow. In Hadley, which is right next to Amherst, they opened a, a Chinese immersion school. That's the principal reason we moved out there. So we moved out, and she started kindergarten there. She's, so that would have been 11 years ago, yeah. All right. Didn't you write or say something about something to do in your 50s was become a parent? Didn't you? 60s. 60s. In your 60s, yes. Yeah, something. <laughs> yeah, become a parent. 60 <laughs> things to do when you're 60. When you're 60, that's right. That's right, become a parent. That's one of them. So now she's 15 years old? 16. 16? Yeah. Yeah, I have a 16-year-old 16, too. 16, getting, getting, getting her learner's permit. Yeah, mine week. too. <laughs> she <laughs> just started taking the online classes for, yeah. Her, for that. Yeah, Robin just finished that. Yeah. And it's, and it's like four hours online. Oh, oh, I know, with a 15-minute break. I know, God. <laughs> I might, that might keep me from ever driving if I had to do that. Yeah. That's crazy. But, you know, we've also, I've also been to, to Northampton because we interviewed Jim Olson. Yeah. Were you with Signature Sounds before you went out to Amherst? Or how long have you been with Signature yes. Sounds now? Yeah, Jim's been a big supporter of mine since, oh, Lord, 
long, long time. I mean, I've known Jim for 20 or 30 years, and then I was, I finished up with high tone, and I was looking for a place to go. And I, figured, I know Jim. He won't steal from me. <laughs> and he doesn't. He's he the won't. only one. <laughs> no, he's, a, he's a great guy. Yeah. And he's, and you know, now he, he represents so many people that we've talked to. And, yeah. And I love that the, the label's great. And they've got their port sessions and they do the green. Not sure. What's the uh, festival? They green do? River Festival. Green River Festival that they yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. That's a huge thing. I was a big hit for him this year, though, having that shut down. That's tough. It's tough for everybody, but the entertainment business is just, I mean, it's yeah. It's been terrible. How did COVID uh, change your plans? Especially since oh, you it like- it changed you- everything. I mean, I, I normally, even at this advanced age, I'm still playing almost 100 shows a year. Yeah. Wow. And, it, and it's, you know, there were none. I mean, yeah. it's just gone. It was an interesting experience. It was like a rehearsal for retirement if I ever wanted to retire, you know. Do you feel like there will be a period of creativity that's going on now because all these artists who would have been going through the meat and potatoes of performing have been sequestered and inside and maybe they're writing, maybe they're composing, maybe they're reading, they're thinking? Well, that's the way it works for me. I mean, mean, it's certainly true for me without even really thinking about it. I've, I've got about half an album's worth of starts they're not finished you know but they're, right. they're starts you know which for me is incredible i usually have to just be real really disciplined and intentional about doing that and this has just happened but the, it's partly because you know when i'm touring so much i hardly ever pre- used to practice yeah because i didn't have to right i was playing so much and now i'm in my music room an hour or two a day yeah I'm working away you know and and you, just, you can't help but, you know, start noodling around with, you know, different stuff. And But at the same time, I think you need both, I, I think, in a way. I, I think there's a lot of people look at it and say, here's an opportunity to become creative, and whether they actually do it or not is another question. It's a lot of pressure to yeah. people say that to you. Yeah, I know. But, you know, I've I've been sitting around thinking about music, certainly, but, you know, as a nice little steep learning curve about how to do streaming and yeah <laughs> and no to, one still figured it out yet yeah how to, how to and it 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 did pretty well in the beginning i was thinking to myself wow who needs to tour this is this is lucrative but then it's true you know, the bloom it goes off the rose and i think actually the audience to be fair to them they come and they see you once and they contribute and then the next time they say, but I already bought this record. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not live. You know, you're not, you know, it's, it seems like a, a recorded medium and you shouldn't have to pay more than once. And, and I, I kind of don't blame them. Yeah, I don't blame them either. I, I think there's people kind of burnt out on the streaming. Right. Yeah. And I get it because a lot of times it's not, it's just not great quality. Depending on, on, on their Wi-Fi it's and kind of, the yeah, camera. It's hit, it's hit or miss, depending yeah. on how much they know and how much they have. I, I've run into another way of doing it, though, with an outfit called Topeka. Have you heard about them? Topeka, yeah. Yeah. I've been doing... I've, I've only done one mini concert with them, but that's yeah. that's a Zoom thing as opposed to just pure streaming. And right. So there's some interaction. Yeah. And uh, it's much more like an actual live performance. I mean, I wind up chatting with these people. Yeah, right. You know, and, and, uh, 
it, it's getting better. I think yeah. it's slowly getting better. Uh, but you, yeah. I read somewhere that you you've been picking up the guitar and playing, just working on your guitar. Cha- I don't know if you're working on your guitar chops, but you've been playing the guitar more than you said that than you used to. Well, I practice more. I mean, that's what I was trying to tell you. You know, I spend two or two hours in the or an hour or two a day in the, you know, just singing and, and practicing because I don't tour. Yeah. I don't get that kind of yeah. practice, and so, uh, you know, and I miss it. Has it been just about trying to remember songs that you've written ages ago, or has has, has there been another focus? On those, on on the on the. Playing. No, it's been more. Uh, it, well, it's just trying to keep the repertoire up. You know, yeah. keep your chops up. But, but again, you know, you can only do that so much, and then you get you start leaning into you know new stuff. Oh, what's this? You know, you find a new progression, start making audio notes, and before you know it, you've you got to start on some new material. When you create new music, you said yeah. that you've got a half dozen songs or so that you're, yeah. that you're working on. Are you essentially doing it by ear? I, I believe that I read that you you, what, you you once claimed that you could barely write music, read and write music. I can't write music can't at write. all. I can barely read it. But I um, I record it. You know, yeah. I just I make audio notes. And you can do it any on anything, an iPad, an iPhone. Uh, I, I have some more sophisticated equipment, but I, you know, I often don't get around to using it. Although I've been doing so much streaming that I've discovered that OBS is a wonderful <laughs> mechanism for recording. Actually, you know? o- OBS, Open Broadcast System. I can't remember, but it's it's, it's a format for streaming. Okay. Oh, okay. And it's also got a recording application. Oh, look, you know more than combined me. Combined with it, and uh, you can do little video record uh, recordings, and then. Just put them in Dropbox and send them to your producer and say, hey, what do you think of this? You know, it's kind of nice. You know. But to Jonathan's point, I think, and I've been saying this a couple of times in the last couple of episodes, I think out of all this, there's going to be a renaissance Boston music. I think there's going to be so much new music coming out. I think there's going to be uh, all that pent-up demand and all yeah, that pent-up, pent-up demand, creativity. The, yeah. The the hope of being able to go see live music. I, right. I can't tell me how many people have told me they miss seeing live music. And well, I've done a couple of live shows, you know, outdoors, you know, socially distanced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the relief is palpable. Yeah. I feel it in myself. Yeah. And I know that the audience feels it. I mean, they're just, it's like, you've never seen that many smiles. I know. I know. They are so happy to be there. And I'm so happy to be doing it for them. I think that's going to be a big plus coming out of this. I, you know, knock on wood. Knock on wood is right. Yeah, so I was on your website, and you have a new album coming out, right? Right. And um, and one of the and I want to, I have many questions about that. But one of the things I noticed is that you can pre-order the CD now, and I'm just right. That's and, right. I, and I'm, I'm genuinely curious how many people are still buying CDs at this point, right? You know, <laughs> vanishingly few in my <laughs> no, I, I it depends on the demographic. You know, uh-huh. if they're my age, they still buy CDs. Really. Well, you came out with vinyl first. That's already released, right? Yeah, that, I'm a well, huge that was that wouldn't have happened. In fact, this this project might not have come out if it hadn't been for something called Record Store Day. Are you familiar right, with that? Right, of course. That? Well, it was supposed to happen back in April, That's and right. it got postponed. And and uh, I was one of the people that they approached and said, "Would you like to contribute something to Record Store Day? We want something on vinyl." And we had been sitting on the remainder of some great recordings from uh, a project that I did five or six years ago called uh, Still on the Levee, 
was a retrospective, a career retrospective. We went back to New Orleans. We must have recorded mm -hmm. 40 or 50 songs. Mm -hmm. We put out a double CD. There were still a great number of tunes that we, we didn't have room for. And uh, so we thought, okay, we got that in the can. Well, you know, we can put something out. And so when this chance came along, we went in and mixed them and mastered them. And, and we had a vinyl release ready to go, but record day didn't happen. And the whole sort of release and record day thing got postponed until we're it's right about now. It's coming out. Yeah, isn't Record Story Day coming out soon? Uh, yesterday. Yesterday. It was this weekend already. I, I think it was. Oh my yeah. God, time flies. I knew it was I, coming. I, but I have copies of the record, and so it becomes immaterial to me. But sort of when it's out. Do you, you listen know, to records? What? Do you listen to LPs to, to vinyl? Not for a long time. I haven't. You know, I've listened to this one. Yes, <laughs> good. That's right. Good. Just to see what it's like. Yes. I'm. I'm not. You know, my producer is a fanatic when it comes to vinyl. He tells me, "Oh, Chris, you know, you, how can I don't, how can you possibly think that CDs sound as good as vinyl?" <laughs> and oh, uh, God. I sometimes think I see his point, especially if I'm listening in his house right. to his system. Yeah, if you have a nice if, system, if yeah, you got a nice system. But compared to 24-bit recording. I don't hear any difference. In fact, I think 24 bits, I don't think anything beats 24 bit recording. Well, I think the thing is that people have ended up listening on really crappy things. They listen just to their, on their iPhones or a little crappy speaker. Oh, I know. I, listen, my, I watch my daughter listening to stuff on these tinny little things. Yeah. And I go, no wonder you don't but like this a, But if you have a real <laughs> stereo system with good speakers, then, you, yeah. then you're like, oh my gosh, what have I been missing? Yeah. Um, I'm a huge vinyl fan. I, we talk about it way too much, but... Um, yeah. So, but I'm glad you came out in vinyl, and I'm, I'm excited to hear. Did you did you do anything like special for the liner notes or for the, the artwork, specifically There's for a the little vinyl? Bit different. Well, the big difference is that it's legible, <laughs> on the album. <laughs> you can actually read it. <laughs> you can read it exactly. All of the uh, artwork and the notes are present in both forms, but it looks nicer in the album. Yeah. I mean, there's with some really nice photography done and I look dignified. <laughs> and and it, and on an album cover it really sh it shows. Yeah. I mean, and and you, you sit there and you remember what it was like when you were a kid and you get this nice yeah. big piece of art yeah. yeah to look at and read while you listen to the record, you know, for the first time. But, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this album that's coming out on October the second is called "More from the Levee." Is that right? More from the Levee. More from right. the Levee. All right. And so, this it, these songs were originally recorded in 2014. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Yeah. And when you went about this project back in 2014, it was a career retrospective, right? Correct. So you were, so you were re-recording songs that you had made over the course of 40 50 years. 50 years. Yeah. yeah. It was a 50-year celebration, essentially. Yeah. All with one exception. There's a there's a new song that actually. Didn't get on the still on the levy double release five years ago, six years ago, uh, and is on this one. We were down in New Orleans. We went to New Orleans to record it. Right. And uh, Goody, my producer, David Goodrich. David had, Goodrich, yeah, yes. Had never really spent much time in New Orleans. He hadn't been there three days, and he says, oh, man, you got to write something new. <laughs> for this and I said no I don't want to work <laughs> you know, I came down here to have fun <laughs> play songs that I already know I mean and I had actually worked pretty hard resurrecting some of the tunes because yeah. some of them I hadn't touched in 20 years right. or more and 
he said, no, come on, come on, write, you got to write, write something, you're home, you know, you haven't been here since you were 22, you know, you left and you haven't really spent this much time. Isn't that something? And so I said, okay, I'll write one. And I did. And <laughs> it was one of these things that, and when we listened to it and we were thinking about putting out this second one, this newest one, and it didn't make it. It didn't make the cut on the on the first one. And I think partly because I don't trust brand new songs. Yeah. Oh, wow. And usually I like to play them out and, you know, try them out in front of audiences and tweak them and make sure right. that the, that they work. And so I think in the back of my mind, I was thinking, this can't be good yet. You know, I don't know. And then we listened to it, you know, five years later. And we went, this is terrific. <laughs> you know, I have two songs. One of them is called down to the sound and that really is about writing songs okay. and people say how do you write songs yeah. this one is about probably the second most asked question which is how do you think being new from new orleans, orleans has yeah. affected your music and that's what this one is about which is the, the answer is i can't answer the question because that's for other people to say right you know. so the lyrics in the song right i say that fish don't really understand the water and birds don't really understand the air so yeah. when people say why does your music sound that way the answer is i don't know right <laughs> that's right <laughs> i love the video for that oh isn't that fun with it's the great lyrics running over? it's really great and you know the, the interesting thing about that song it's like when you have it, the music with the lyrics, it's almost like you can't tell the verse from the chorus or anything like that because you're you're kind of it's almost like you're riff you're riffing and speaking to the music rather than like it's it's organized in some way. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I do I do, and yet at the same time I love the video because the words are spelled out right, for yeah, you. Yeah. You know you can't ignore them, yeah. and I spend more time on the lyrics than I do on anything. Is, that, is that where you start when you start a song? Do you no, have a lyric in mind? No, the lyrics yeah. are the last thing. Really? I, yeah, that's the hard part. <laughs> I put that off until the last possible minute. No, I, I start off with uh, guitar parts, you know, little licks and progressions and ideas for turnarounds and things like that. And then once I've got something something going, you know, a, a, a harmonic rhythm, a, a progression, I start scat singing against it, trying to find a melody against the progression, against the, the general flow. And that usually harmonizes as well uh, with the guitar part, as opposed to just being a strict, strict melody that, yeah. that I'm playing. I've demonstrated this a lot of times if you were sitting, if you and I were, were sitting here and I could play you a song in progress, you could hear me singing. And the, th the thought that goes through a lot of people's minds is if I were just sitting a little closer to him, I'd be able to understand what he's saying. Really? <laughs> and I'm not really saying anything. It's nonsense syllables. But the advantage of that is that it, it, it tells you how the rhythm, how the lyrical rhythm has to fit in where the pauses have to be, where the rhymes should fall. And then ever, after a little while, you, you keep doing that and, and a line pops out. And you look at it and say, oh, okay. You try not to pay too much attention to it because you don't want to scare it off. You yeah. know, whatever's happening, you don't want to scare that off. And, and the, after that, it's just an exploration to see what can happen. And with any luck at all, you'll surprise yourself. You know? And the best songs are always a surprise. You never start off, you almost, I say almost, but never start off with an idea of what the song is about. The song should be able to tell you what it's about and then 
once you've figured it out, you can elaborate on it. But preconceived notions usually come out very stiff and overworked. So you write the music first. So do you feel like the, and then you write the lyrics second, yeah. right? So does the melody line affect the lyrical content or do you try Absolutely. to? Absolutely. It does. Oh, okay. yeah. It, yes. I, well, affect. They have to cohabit. Yeah. You know, sometimes they're at odds with one another and that can have a very pleasing effect. You know, you can write tragic songs with a very bouncy melody yeah. and, and vice versa. You can write yeah. pretty happy, very nice love songs that have almost tragic sounding <laughs> melody. People have written about your lyrics that you write about big things. You write about life and love and, you know, you know things of large scope. Do you, do you feel under pressure to be philosophical and to write about big things or no no i i i have some i have some very um trivial kind of things i've (laughs) I've written as well but the songs that i'm most invested in i think you know the ones that i really like the ones that i point to and say that's the kind of thing i like to think of myself as writing are all about those things but i that i don't think that's unique to me in any way I, uh, most worthwhile things are a reflection of the big questions yeah. in everybody's life what you're looking for you know the, the continual search you know <coughs> what is it what gives me meaning why am i alive why do i like you how is that going to help me understand my life and avoid dying <laughs> you know I mean, you don't think about it in quite those terms but but they're they're huge questions that we live with every day without even realizing that we're thinking about them. Does, to that point, do you, I mean, we're in pretty trying times right now politically. Do you ever gravitate towards political commentary? I make some overt statements. On, on the last album, Call Me Lucky, I have, I have one verse that's dedicated to the, the current occupant of the White House. Yep. <laughs> in none too flattering terms. I don't think anybody who comes, you know, any fan of mine who knows anything about my music, I can't imagine that they have the slightest doubt about what my political leanings are. Yep. But I try to avoid much more than that. I don't get up and preach. I, I will stand, I'll, I'll be on stage and say, go out and vote, but I won't tell you who to vote for. Do you think there's something about folk music that lends itself to left of center thought, right? Do you could could someone be? I think music lends itself to left of center thought. I don't think. Um, I yeah. I I'll let that rest right about there. I I I think music. I do have a sense of rightness. If people say, "Do you think that you have the right way of thinking?" I say, "I might be wrong about a lot of things, but when it comes when it comes to political positions, mm-hmm. the left is always right. Always. I can't think of any place where the right has ever been right. You know, when you look at social progress in this country over its entire history, I can think of one that happened under Republican rule. And that was emancipation and nothing else. Not Social Security, not voting rights, civil rights, everything that makes people free has come from the left. Is there anything right now that you can compare from when you, when you came to Boston to the civil rights era? Is there anything that, are you, are you seeing 
repeat of things? Are you seeing something different? Is this just another episode? I, it reminds me of the 60s. I don't have the same relationship to it, the gut relationship to the 60s that I, I'm, uh, to this period that I did in the 60s. In the 60s, I was in mortal fear of my, for my life from something else entirely than COVID-19. Uh, I was pre-lottery, open to the draft, and Lyndon Johnson was sending 50,000 guys a month to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. That terrified me. And it motivated me, you know, to, you know, I got my head banged in at anti-war rallies, just like everybody else. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a dramatic time. I remember a definite feeling that we were actually doing something. And when we got out of the war, I and all of my friends thought, we did it in some degree. Somehow we actually made a difference and we made a change and we got out of there. Very little has been as disheartening to me as, as the resurrection of that war, the rehabilitation of that war that's happened in people's minds. Um, part of it is that it's been belittled and almost forgotten because we lost it, you know. But I, I really feel that very fewer people than I would have hoped took the lesson. That you can't just do everything out of the barrel of a gun. You just can't. So that's disheartening, but thousands of generations before me have been disheartened as they get closer to the end of their life than they are to the beginning. That's exactly right. I mean, I think yeah. there, people were having the same thoughts back in the 60s or whenever these kind of things pop up. We're not the first generation, whatever generation you are, to go through something like this. Right. I mean, we're, we're fortunate to live in a country that's been you know, we're a separate continent. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if we lived in Serbia or if you lived, you know, in uh, numerous other countries where the strife and war torn life that people have grown up in, we, we were fortunate to, to kind of escape that. But right. after Vietnam ended, right? So this was the, yeah. uh, roughly the, the early 1970s. There, this roughly correlates with a period in your career, there was about a 12-year period where you weren't recording, right. right? And do you think that there was some correlation between when, you know, in the 60s and there was this motivation to change the world and all of this stuff and that motivated your art and your work and then after, and then after that was over, that does, do you think there was a relationship between that and the, the, the period that you took? That oh, had, no. No? No. I, you know, my, my whole 12-year hiatus from recording and from any meaningful progress musically was due entirely to my own uh, predilection for alcohol. Okay. <laughs> that was just, <laughs> you know, I, I lost a, a lot of time, you know, dealing with that and, or not dealing with it. And then finally, how, you know, how did you deal? How did you deal with it? How did you, I don't know. You know it's just, it's one of those things. I, there's a lot of help out there. If you really want to get over any kind of substance abuse, you can make use of that, but some people get well and some people don't. I used to think I knew the answers to why, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I can tell you that it has absolutely nothing to do with being a good person. It has absolutely nothing to do with being smart. It has absolutely nothing to do with any innate quality of mind that is good or, or capable or competent. Yeah. You know, if I were a Christian, I'd call it grace. 
but I'm not, you know, so I don't know what to call it. You know, it's, I'm grateful yeah. to whatever powers that be, you know, got me out of that jam. So did, so did you just give it up completely or did you just sort of, did it, did you, did your relationship just become healthy? Oh no, I, I had to, I, I just, I just quit it. Just then, quit it. And then spent years, not too many years, but probably five years, um, getting comfortable with the idea of living yeah. the way I live now. Yeah. Well, it is National Recovery Month right now. Oh, there you go. So I'm glad we're able <laughs> it can to, talk, be done. to touch. It's, it can be. You know, it's it, it's tough, but congratulations. I, I mean, that, that's great. And, um, you know, I know it was a long time ago, but I'm yeah, just it's, happy. T- it's still always there. <laughs> yeah, you know, I want to talk about um, Boston because you came to Boston from New Orleans when, right. you were, when you were a young kid. You thought about going to the West Coast at first, but then you were, you were pushed I, up here I, to well, Club 47. Well, that was a... You know, I, I never really leaned towards the re- the West Coast. I thought about it. And after I got to Boston, you know, I was 21, 22, you know, when I got up here from New Orleans. And and people were starting to go to the West Coast from here. And there's something about the East Coast. And I loved California. I, I would get out there and I'd play, you know, early in the, uh, 1970, 71, when my first record came out. And I would... I, I was playing a lot in California, and I loved it, you know, but I didn't have the depth of cultural compost. Well, you know, it wasn't too long ago they celebrated the anniversary of Club Pessim. Just a couple, right. just a, what is it, a year and a half ago, maybe? I, I don't know. That time's kind of disappeared in my head over the last couple of months. It's hard to figure out what happened when. But you used to play at Club 47 when it was That's Club right. 47. I still love being in the room. It's a great room. I've got some great ghosts in there. <laughs> and they, they're all in there patting you on the back, you know. Yeah. And, you know, and it's not even the ghost. It's the current lineup of folk musicians and musicians yeah, in Boston right now oh, that yeah. you've had sing with you and play with you on your albums. That's right. Uh, let's see. I have a list here. So Mark Arelli, yeah. Matt Lorenz, who's a suitcase junket. Right. Chris Delmhorst. Yep. Jeffrey Foucault. Yeah. Billy Conway. That's right. Billy Con- Billy's in Colorado right now, I think he is. Um now where's billy now? i'm sorry say that again billy conway isn't he in colorado right now or something montana montana I but he's, he's coming back he's moving to the valley he's moving to the connecticut valley oh great yeah. that's awesome it's wonderful but you've so you, you've really kind of embraced the current list of amazing yes, musicians uh, in, in I, boston you know i i got into that i i was at the tail end when i came to boston i was at the tail end of the original club 47 batch you know mm-hmm. and i was the tail end i was the kid you know of of the Tom Rushes and the Jug Band and Eric Von Schmidt and, and uh, all of them, yeah. and Joan Baez, <laughs> that whole thing. And, and then after that, I sort of self-sabotaged myself for 10 or 12 years. And, and then when I came back, all the people that you just mentioned were just coming up. I wanted to get in with a crowd someplace, you know, so. That was who. Uh, but it's a nice who, family. They all play oh, with each they, other, and it, it is a continuation of exactly the same sort of feeling that was going on in the '60s at the 47. Huh. Yeah. yeah, that's or the great way. That's the way I see it. Yeah. yeah. So you have done work with Bonnie Raitt before, right? She has covered one of your a song that you wrote, correct? Yes, you recorded two of them, and one of them has become basically a blues standard. So when her career absolutely, I mean, she, she toiled in relative obscurity for quite a while. And right. then in the 80s, she had uh, the nick of time right. um, that came out and skyrocketed her you know, right. to, super, to superstardom. Right. Were you 
surprised by this? Were you taken by this? Were no, you, were you, I always you, thought she was a star. Okay, always thought she was a star. I didn't know she was. I didn't. <laughs> when I first met her, she was Dick Waterman's redheaded girlfriend. I didn't know she even played the guitar. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> we used to all go over to Dick Waterman's house because Dick was managing all these rediscovered blues men from yeah. from Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia. You know. Yeah. And uh, you name it, you know, you'd go into his living room and Fred McDowell would be in there jamming with Sun House, you know. <laughs> you know, what are you gonna, you know, oh my God. And and there was this girl, you know, this little Cliffy, redheaded Cliffy from uh, California, but Dick's girlfriend, and she was hanging out and watching this, that, and the other. And it was, must have been three years. I think Dick moved to Philadelphia and Bonnie went with him. And I was in Philadelphia once to play a series of nights at one of the clubs there. He used to play clubs for more than one night. And I wound up staying at Dick's place. Dick was out of town, Bonnie was there. She said, what have you been doing lately? And I said, oh, I got this, I got a couple of new tunes and I was playing and she, she said, oh, that was really good. You should play that with, on slide. And I said, I don't play slide. And she said, oh, it's easy, look. <laughs> <laughs> Let me show you how it's done. <laughs> yeah, really. I just sat there with my mouth open. You know, it was. Just, I, I didn't had no idea she even played at all up until that point. No, she had it from the beginning. I, I wasn't in the least bit surprised. The only thing that surprised me was how long it took. You know, that that she actually did have to pay some dues and have some ups and downs. But you know, she's like all of us. You know, she can tell the stories about why. And, the whys and the wherefores and this, that, and the other. But uh, it happened late enough f that she could appreciate it. You know the band Nine Inch Nails? I know of them. So, so they, they, they wrote a song, and Johnny Cash sang one of their songs called Hurt, I think it is. I think it's the one. Oh, oh on that album that he did with uh, Rick. Uh, uh, Rick Rubin. Yes, Rick right. Rubin. So when they heard him singing that, they were like, oh, that's his song now. The way Johnny Cash sang it, and it was yeah. like, and it was so deep, and he was, you know, he was, he, I don't know if he was sick at the time, but it was an amazing song that they yeah. were just like, it's his song now. Yeah. Do you ever feel that when, you know, when someone takes one of your songs, which have, a lot of people have done your songs, do you ever, have you ever been like, up, oh, that's their song now? I think, well, Bonnie, when Bonnie did Love You Like a Man, and she called it Love Me Like a Man, it became hers simply because nobody knew who the hell I was. She changed the gender, right. of course, and the, the gender aspect of it. I remember when she called me up, <laughs> Chris, you know, have you ever talked to her? She, has, <laughs> she can be very brash, you know. She calls me up two in the morning, you know, I'm half asleep. Chris! I said, hey, hey, Bonnie. She says, we're doing your song, man. <laughs> you know? And I said, which one? She says, uh, I want to do your song, Love You Like a Man. And I said, oh, okay. She says, I said, you want me to rewrite it for you, like for, for a woman? And she says, I already did it. <laughs> you know, I said, good, I'm going back to sleep. <laughs> and then she, hadn't she already recorded it too? Yeah, she, I, I think it, it was already down at that point. And uh, That's always easier to ask for uh, forgiveness than permission. Oh, yeah, yeah really. <laughs> well, I don't, you know, Technically, she doesn't have to ask for permission because I had already recorded it myself. And so it's just, a, you know, it's mandatory licensing takes over at that point. You, you can't refuse. No, and it's Bonnie. So you but know, it's fine, you know. It's like I laugh all the way to the bank, you know. I, <laughs> <laughs> good for you. It was a good deal for me. Yeah, yeah. And then she did, uh, she did I Feel the Same. And to tell you the truth, I think in a way uh, she possessed that song in a way that, 
that was significantly different from the way she took over Love You Like a Man. Huh. It is, it's never become popular. It's never been that much of a deal. But to me, it is a deep, it is so deeply soulful. And it's got Lowell George playing slide on it. I mean, it's just uncanny. <laughs> that must be so gratifying to see someone take a song of yours and and almost oh, like, there's and, nothing like it. It is the most grat you know for a songwriter, and I don't care who the singer is. I mean, if it's somebody of Bonnie's caliber or Diana Krall, she recorded yep. "Love You Like a Man" as well. Mm. You go, oh my God, you know that's that's wonderful. And there's you know the remuneration is not a small aspect of it. But for anybody to do one of your tunes. I, I say this so many times, I've said this so many times, it's the songs are your children. And when somebody else does the song, you look at it and you say, I raised them right. You know, <laughs> they learned how to cross the street by themselves without getting run over. There they are. They're out there living. They don't need me anymore. And it's just great. It's the most wonderful feeling in the world. And if you're lucky, they send a check home to dad once in a while. <laughs> so, okay, so you've mentioned remuneration a couple of times here. So... Has streaming affected this? And now that people aren't buying CDs as much, are you are you seeing a difference in this, or does it? Is well, it mostly you, you know, the same? money, the money, the direct money from streaming can't not begin to compare with the kind of money you get used to get from radio play. It, it is pennies. Streaming rights, all these things are governed by the legislation from Congress. You want to guess how much your average congressman knows about music rights <laughs> and the life of a songwriter who's trying to make sure he gets his money? I've seen the hearings, so not much. Uh, not very much. Uh, why should I have to pay for it? That's what. That's most people's reaction. Right. And, and they're indignant that artists should be reimbursed for the use of their music in commercial establishments, for instance. I bought the record. Jeez. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's another horse. That's a hobby horse that, you know, you can ride for a long time. The, um, the streaming services, however, have not caught up, and no. they pay a pittance. And if they could, they would pay half a pittance. They fight it tooth and nail. They don't want to pay for anything. However, having said that, because of streaming services, my concerts are all full. They put warm bottoms on the seats. It doesn't seem complicated, but it seems like a hard concept for a lot of people to grasp. So what is the upshot of streaming? What is the ultimate effect of streaming? Will it push more musicians to have to tour and perform live in order to make the same amount of money? Or do you think there oh, will? Oh, yeah. I think so, at least until something dramatic happens. I can't imagine what that would be uh, just offhand. But Personally, it has not affected me to the degree that it has, has affected a lot of other, you know, particularly more famous musicians. I've always depended on touring for the, the lion's share of, of my income. I want to ask you about your, your voice. Has your voice been changing? Have you had to, especially, well, you know, you, you had major heart surgery. Not, not, how, yeah. When, <laughs> when, was, when was that? That wasn't too long ago, That right? was, oh my goodness, five years ago? Five years ago. Yeah. How are you feeling? I'm terrific. That's excellent. You're touring so much, and you—I mean—you used to—you used to do 200 shows a year, from what yeah. I read, and now you're 100 shows is still a freaking yeah. lot of shows to do. Right? Has your voice been changing? It's changed over the years. My range has dropped. Yeah. I can sing lower than I used to, but I can't sing as high as I used yeah, to be able to yeah. either. I've learned a lot about singing. I—I I think I'm a more effective singer than I was, yeah. I, and I pay attention to it more than I used to. I try to warm up. I practice it. 
And there's just certain things. If I'd ever, I'm so self-educated. I'm so self-taught uh, in both guitar and and vocal that, that there are a lot of things that are elementary to to teachers that it took me years to figure out yeah. because I, I, I wasn't smart enough to ask. It was really halfway, It was I was halfway through my career before I believed my own voice. What do you mean by that? I would sit and listen to myself and say, okay, that's believable. Oh, interesting. <laughs> you know, I, I believe him I'm as, if, as though he were a stranger uh. and the person that I'm listening to. I think it was the Leave the Light On album. I think when that one came out, I listened to the vocals on that and thought, okay, it sounds like somebody who actually knows what he's talking about. So, is, there, is there a temptation to sing in a particular vernacular or with a particular accent, right? Most of these blues artists came from the American South or from the New Orleans area. Did you, do you feel pressure to enunciate in a certain way or to match a certain vocal style? My normal speaking voice is, is I feel, very standard American English. And yeah. I, I don't think I have too many regionalisms yeah. in my speaking voice, but in my singing voice, I very often revert to New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to speak more like New Orleans just out of self-defense. There is a, a certain protective coloration yeah. process that goes on when you're a kid. And uh, I know that when I sing, I hearken vocally to black people. All of my heroes when I was coming up were black people, and the way they sang was the way you were supposed to sing. And, and I know that there's a degree of that in, in, in what I sing. But I don't have any objection to that. As I said, you know, my voice got to a point where I believed it. And now I listen to myself and I think, okay, you're not putting anybody on. I think your voice is very Amherstian. <laughs> I just made that up. I don't know what it That's means. Good. That's a good voice. Yeah, Amherstian. Like it sounds very English. <laughs> um, last question. Yeah. And this is and and you brought the board. I know the I know the story about the, the yeah. toe tapping, and I'm a toe tapper myself. Right. But it's been it's almost become part of your performance. Yeah. And part of the sound. It's on the records and things like right. that. So you you embraced it, and right. and also people encourage you to embrace it. To the point that you actually bring a board to tap onto. Yeah. When did you start one doing the sound right? right. <laughs> you wanted it to sound right. That's really interesting. When did you start using a board and then having that really be a integral part of? Well, it's a part of your of your sound. It happened. The realization that I should do it came. Well, you know, it's been probably twenty five years now that, that into it, but. Uh, when I was first starting with my current management, Carol Young and Charlie Hunter at the time, they were a, a team. All my life, not all my life, but my, all my recording life, up to that point, my producers had said, don't tap your feet. And I, would, I, and I can't play. If I don't tap my feet, I, I can't play. Yeah, yeah. It, it's like trying to play without your front teeth or something. You know? <laughs> it's just, it doesn't work, you know, and it throws you off. You can't get your natural groove going. Then another thought came to me almost simultaneously with meeting Charlie and Carol, which was that there would be times when I'd be getting ready to play a show and I would be in the dressing room warming up, playing my guitar, and I would feel great. And I'd think, this, this is going to be a terrific show. I, I just feel like playing tonight. I'd get out there and it would fall flat. And I realized that every time that happened, it was because the stage was carpeted. Uh... And I couldn't hear myself. I couldn't feel it. 
the right way. My feet were bouncing instead of whacking. So I mentioned this to Carol, and uh, she said, well, get a board or something. Is it important that you hear it or feel it? And I said, both. And she said, well, if it's important for you to hear it, then probably the audience should hear it too. Let's put a mic down there. Right, you mic your feet. Uh, And so I mic my feet. I started micing my feet. And the difference was phenomenal. I mean, because there are aspects of my guitar playing that don't make sense if the other parts of the rhythm don't get filled in by the feet. It it sounds kind of naked and sort of unstructured, and yet the feet... Well, any drummer can tell you how that works. (laughs) Well, there's no coincidence that you can see bands that are mainly just acoustic instruments right. and they'll just have a bass drum there that they'll, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, they'll yeah, just yeah. keep that beat and if yeah. for whatever reason that fills it up that really kind of grabs yeah. you and it tells you that gives you the, that now you know which pole you're supposed to swing around yeah I like that it's <laughs> very good so how many boards have you gone through <laughs> they last a pretty long time. Oh, yeah? That's my pre-war chipboard there. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a, Looks like it's had a few years on it that's not, actually the one that I have in my music room at home and I have another one that's slightly smaller that fits into the CD suitcase that I take on the road. They usually last until the airline gives the, oh, <laughs> the right. suitcase a big whack and they break right down well, the You middle. should patent it. Sell it, on, you know, sell it online. <laughs> foot tapping uh, board. You know, there's a couple of companies that make these tapping boards now that with with kind of rather sophisticated electronics. Really? Them. Yeah. They've oh, approached okay. me about using them but they for one thing, they make them out of tone woods. Huh. And for the most part, I don't want a board that has its own note. I, you oh, know, yeah. That's why I use a particle board, because it's dull. Huh. It has no note. It just has a whack. Interesting. To it, you know, I, <laughs> I don't have to tune my board. You know. Chris, thank you very much for sitting with us. We really hey, appreciate it. Can you play us a couple songs? Would you, of course. Would you do All right, let's uh, get you set up. This guitar, this guitar is interesting. I mean, I got this one at the Music Emporium. Yeah, and that's one. And... Uh, and it was, <laughs> it was built custom for a guy who played it for 20 minutes and didn't like it. Oh. And I walked in like 45 minutes later and I said, and Joe says, hey, Chris. And I said, hey, Joe, got anything interesting? And he says, do I? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And I, I, I couldn't believe it. it was such, I couldn't believe that anybody walked away from this guitar. And, and then... Uh, I was down in Texas, I went to Austin, and I stopped in, and I'd met Steve, I forget where I met Steve, and he says, well, have you ever seen the shop? And I said, no, he says, well, come on, and he says, okay, there's Bill. He said, now, Bill's kind of crusty, he said, don't, don't take anything, <laughs> he says, too seriously. And so, we walked over, and uh, Steve says, Bill, this is, uh, this is Chris Smither, and Bill was looking at some guitar neck and trying to sketch the profile of a guitar neck that they were building for somebody. And he, did, he wasn't even looking up, you know. Steve says, Bill, this is Chris Smither. He's the one that wound up with that uh, 12-fret cutaway with the, you know, with the solid top. And uh, he just wanted to say hi. And Bill didn't look up. He says, is he any good? <laughs> I, said, I said, of course I'm good. And then he looked up, you know. <laughs> Uh. 
Well, down in Nola, where we listen, some of that, some of this in keys beyond the normal range. Everything's just a little strange, but mostly it's just a place to be. You've got to leave it for you, see it sticks to you. I left before you did me in, down in dirty, don't begin to talk about my state of mind. All I wanted was to find a way to get between that funky and that played cleaner too. I forget about my feelings, I don't mind, but don't forget that second line. Can't you come on out and play? Let's see what you got today. How you make it sound that way? I never know just what to say. It's beans and rice and sticky nights. Ain't too fair to keep it in the groove. It just comes out that way. Won't go back in like gumbo running down your chin. The feeling's just a little thin, but it's slick as glass and dark as sin. With downbeats on the upside, just to take you for a ride and make it move. Oh, I see they say, well, no wonder. It's a miracle that you ain't six feet under. Fish don't understand the water, they just do the things they oughta. Birds don't understand the air, they don't even know it's there. They don't have a clue, but just like me, they do the things they do. It's what I do, it's what I do, it's what I do. Nice touch adding uh, when the Saints. The one the Saints, yeah. One more? Yeah.
was very high, high, high in the order of things. Yeah, just one step and I'd spread my wings to fly. I would fly. You know what? I gotta tune this thing out. I just, it's gonna drive me crazy. There's a lot more song to go. <laughs> I 
I could have saved your soul I do believe I do believe Oh yes, I could have saved your soul I could have saved your soul I do believe I do believe Yeah, then I was an old man Staring at the wall Looking for an answer Just to make sense of it all And I can safely say That if it comes my way It will not stay for long But I'll be on my way Before it's gone Before it's gone Yeah, around we go, these faces show they leave, and everyone seems ever real. And each one is truly mine, they never last, but at the time it's how I feel. Yeah, how I feel. Each one is truly mine They never last But at the time It's how I feel How I feel Yeah, but when I was a caveman When I was a caveman I had it all I had it all We would like to thank Chris for talking with us. You can see where he is playing next and get his latest and greatest at smither.com. And don't forget to vote and not just in our election. ATB is nominated for two 2020 Boston Music Awards, Music Podcast of the Year, and Live Music Stream of the Year. So please support us in Boston Music by voting at bostonmusicawards.com forward slash vote. And finally, go to AboveTheBasement.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, listen and subscribe to our podcast, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and look at all the nice pictures we post on Instagram. We are everywhere. From all of us at Above the Basement, please vote. Wear a mask. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. And remember, Boston music, like its history, is unique. Music